Well, we're going to uh, start our new series for Christmas this year. Um, we're calling it, if you can't already guess by what we sang this morning, we're calling it, Let Us Adore Him. Let Us Adore Him. There it is, right there. And um, I don't care whether you turn to Matthew's account of the Christmas story or you turn to Luke's account of the Christmas story, one of the things you will, you will see there is that, uh, is that there seems to be this uptick, a significant uptick in worship at the coming of Jesus. I want to just remind you of a few of them. Um, Mary's response to all that was happening to her was, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You may remember when the angels uh, touched down from heaven, their announcement of the birth was actually an anthem of worship. Anybody remember what it was? Glory to God in the highest, right? The shepherds, who were the first to be able to witness the child, after they had seen and heard what they saw and heard, this is what it says, they returned or went away glorifying and praising God for what they had seen and heard. And finally, the wise men, tell, it tells us sometime later after they arrived, in Matthew's Gospel, it says their whole purpose for making the journey that they did was to worship him. And in verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. As you read these, the narrative of all that occurred, you can't help but step back away from it and say, when Jesus showed up, worship went up, right? There was something in the air that caused for people's hearts to proclaim worship. Now, with all that as the backdrop, if you will, over the next few weeks, we just want to talk about this matter of worship. And we might start by asking ourselves the question, what is worship all about? If you were to ask a number of people familiar with the church setting, what is worship, a majority of them would probably say it's the time of singing right before the sermon. And rightly so, because sometimes the way that we break down a service or we designate portions of a service, we call what we just went through as the worship and then the sermon. If you were to ask people not familiar with the church scene what worship is, I can't even imagine what the replies would be. I don't know how many of you have ever taken the time. Uh, you know, there's, there's um, people or ministries that are kind of dedicated to finding out what the pulse of our culture is as it relates to spiritual things. They'll go out and interview people about a number of different things that you and I know about. And uh, for kicks sometime, if you will go to YouTube 
and you type in interviews with people about Jesus, you will be utterly shocked by how people answer certain questions. Even if they're asked who Jesus is, you would be uh, shocked. Maybe you've seen some of the ones about uh, where people go out and say, you know, what do you know about the Constitution of the United States? And uh, people don't even know what it is. The same is true of spiritual things. It will utterly shock you, but it's kind of where our world is at. It's where our culture is at for sure. You may have heard that the word for worship comes from an old English word uh, spelled worthship. Worthship, all right? And that word means to give something or someone its worth. Worthship. To give someone or something its worth. And while this old uh, English uh, etymology of the word might be helpful, it doesn't really capture uh, a wider biblical definition of what the word worship means. I'd like to take you back to the account I just touched on in Matthew chapter 2. As I've already mentioned, the account, it's the account of the wise men. And it records for us why they made the 1,000-mile the trek from where they live to Israel. It tells us why they did that. It says there, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Their whole uh, purpose for making this journey was to worship him. Now, the word in the Greek there for worship in that verse is the word proskinao. Proskinao, I have it here on the screen for you right here. It means, this is the word worship now, it means to pay homage, to show reverence, to kneel or fall before. Actually, if you to even broaden that de de uh, definition, it can also mean to kiss or to kiss the feet of, right? So the word, so here are these guys making this months-long trek in order to pay homage, show reverence, kneel, fall before, kiss. You get the idea, right? The whole point of their journey, we have come to do this. This is what we came to do, to worship him. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, it says they did what they started out their journey to do. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Most translations say it this way, they fell down and worshipped him. Again, the word for worshipped here is the verb tense of that same Greek word, proskinao, about paying homage, showing reverence, falling down, kneeling down, kissing They worshipped Jesus. But I want to take it, go a little bit deeper this morning. What exactly was taking place here? 
I mean, there was no worship band playing in the background. Right? We didn't have the PCF worship band at the house that the wise men showed up at. So there was no music, if you will. There was no assemblance of even a church service taking place when these wise men came to the house. And yet it says, in that moment, they fell down and worshipped him. They were paying homage, showing reverence, kneeling, falling down before him. They were worshiping him. And I want, us, I want us to just begin a little bit by looking at this definition. And I want to take that first phrase. They were paying homage to him. What does that mean? Uh, well, well, we, we don't even use that word anymore, right? Do we? I don't use that word. I can't remember the last time I said the word homage, right? They were paying homage to him. The only way, I think the reason that that word has found its way out of our society, found its way out of, our, out of cultural relevance for us, is because we don't really practice paying homage anymore. We don't do it. Our culture is not designed to pay homage. In fact, when you see that word most used in, in history, it is a word that is used with a caste system or a feudal system where you have people of basically only two classes, nobility and people of no nobility. You have kings and you have peasants. And in that Society in that type of culture, homage is where those of nobility have, have given to those of no nobility, and those of no nobility are indebted, they are in servitude to those who are in nobility. Do you understand the picture? I like. Kings and peasants, right? And what we need to understand is in this moment of time of biblical history, that's exactly the type of culture that Jesus came into. There were the haves and the have-nots. There were the people in charge and the people in service to those in charge. Now what makes the story of the, the king or the wise men amazing is that these were people in their culture who were in charge, but they were making themselves as peasants to come and pay homage to this child in a house. And in that process, it tells us that that meant they were worshiping him. These wise men 
were singing a few hymns or bringing some really cool gifts that this child could use. They were, what, rather, what they were doing in that moment is that they were submitting their lives to this child in submission, in reverence, paying homage to this child because they had come to discover, they had come to realize who this child really was. I have often heard it said, we praise God for the things he has done, but we worship him for who he is. These wise men had come to believe that this child was actually the king of the universe. They had studied the scripture. I don't know how many of you know how they think that these wise men of, of uh, complete culture, devoid of Hebrew uh, teaching and thought, how they had come to uh, the, that, the conclusion to make that trek to worship Jesus. But many believe it's because they came from the culture that Daniel had found himself in. Remember the story in the Old Testament? And that when Daniel came there, he brought with him the texts of the Old Testament. And after that period of time in history, those were left behind and others found them and began to study them in a culture unfamiliar with uh, that Hebrew, uh, the prophetic uh, scriptures of Hebrew life. But it tells us that after studying these scriptures, they had come to the conclusion that led them to make this extensive journey in order to offer their lives in worship to this child. I want to just reiterate, this was not done to fill out a scene for the kids' Christmas pageant, right? It, 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 that's not why they came and did it. We, we tend to think, oh, you know, there come the shepherds, okay, and then here come the, the, the three wise guys. Here they, you know, we need that to make it a full picture. They had never met this child before. They had only heard references in the sacred scriptures to this child being born. Had never ever met him before. Didn't know what uh, hair color he had. Didn't know whether he had a, uh, uh, you know, a light or dark complexion. None of that. Had never met him, knew, never knew his personality. And yet they traveled almost a thousand miles to pay homage, to show reverence, to fall down and kneel down, to prostrate themselves before this child. That's amazing. And in that, the Bible tells us they worshiped Jesus. We worship him for who he is. I wrote this in my notes. When you see 
what you need to see about who he is, you are willing to fall down wherever and whenever you need to. One of the passages that the wise men surely would have referenced in their study of Scripture, one of the books would have been Isaiah. And in Isaiah 9, it gives us a window into who this child really was. You've heard this passage before, I'm sure, many times. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I am very confident that this passage, along with many other passages, is what led the wise men to seek out this child. In these two verses, there, was, there is a lot going on in terms of coming to know who this child is. In these two verses, there is extensive prophetic reference to him not being just a king, but the king. Listen to what that said. The government, the government, the government, not the United States government, the government of the world will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of the, his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne forever. There is no doubt that in these two verses, they clearly understood that this was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He was the Kahunta Hunter of authority. The big cheese. In Isaiah chapter 7, two chapters before what I just read to you, it says that this same child will come bearing the name Emmanuel. God with us. That tells you a little something about who they understood this child to be. But then here in Isaiah 9, we have four titles, four names, if you will. He, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when we read those names, that does not mean that Jesus was actually going to be called by these names. For instance, you know, Mary didn't say to Jesus' brother, hey, would you please go tell wonderful counselor dinner is ready? 
we see no reference to that in the New Testament, where these names were directly ascribed to Jesus. These names were given not so that uh, Handel could write a beautiful song called, you know, the Messiah. These names were given so that we would come to understand who this child is. I'd like to look at these four, four titles here this morning. Number one, Wonderful Counselor. Now I know some people you may be saying, no, there's actually five. Some people say Wonderful and Counselor are two different titles. Uh, I got all that, but for our purposes this morning, uh, we're just going to use it as one. Wonderful Counselor. Now if you're taking notes, you might just want to write down, this has to do with his sagacity which has to do with wisdom sage wisdom as paul put it in romans 16:27 jesus is the only wise god only wise god now i think we can all agree here this morning you and i gain wisdom by growing and learning, by interacting with experiences and stuff in our world, you and I, we are supposed to anyways, we're supposed to glean wisdom from that, right? Life experience. And then we say about people who are older and have white hair and whatnot, they are a sign of wisdom. Well, the reason we say that is because they've had a lot of life experience. And because of that, uh, they've gleaned, hopefully, some wisdom, right? But I just want to remind you this morning, that is not how Jesus is wise. Jesus didn't start out like you and me. He didn't come into that manger needing to figure some things out. He came into that manger as the only wise God. That's who he is. He has exhaustive, comprehensive knowledge, an understanding of all that is, but not by deduction or calculation. You and I, that's how we get it. I want to ask you this morning, can you think of any scenario or situation where Jesus said something wrong? You won't find it. You know why? Because he was the only wise God. He's not like you and me. There was never a time he spoke out of turn or stuck his foot in his mouth. He spoke when he needed to speak and he remained silent when he needed to remain silent. His counsel was wonderful. It was unfailing and flawless, perfect to every situation, and always practical and prudent. There was no problem that Jesus ever needed to study up on. Huh, boy, I should probably read up about that. He never had to do that. Why? 
because he was the only wise God. Jesus never had to seek out a counselor himself. You know, they're asking me about if they should pay taxes or not. Um, oh boy, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, I should probably go get some advice about it. Jesus never had to do that. He didn't start out. He could, remember at 12, or I think he was around 12 years old, he's in the temple and he's talking like, like he's a rabbi, right? He's talking like he knows it all, right? The reason is he showed up like that. If he could have talked as a baby, he would have given wonderful counsel. That's who he was. He was a wonderful counselor. I don't know about you, but I always feel frustrated sometimes when I have to say to someone, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Oh, I don't know, maybe you've never had to say those words. Right? <laughs> maybe you always knew what to say. But I've had plenty of moments in my life where people have shared something with me or said something. I'm like, dude, I'm not sure what to say. Jesus was never like that. He was the only wise God. Jesus never lacks an advice or an answer to satisfy our souls. Number two, the title Mighty God. This has to do with his sovereignty. Jesus is not only able to give perfect advice he is also able to supply us with the power needed to heed that advice. I said to someone just yesterday, they were talking about who, how they are and uh, kind of how they're wired. And, and, and you know, the, the idea was, I, I, don't, I don't think I could ever change. Like, dude. Oh, what's the point in following God if we can't change? He has the power and the ability to bring transformation in our life. The word mighty God in Isaiah here, chapter 9, relates to a king's leadership role. In the original Hebrew, the adjective means it, 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 it means having or showing great power and authority or military leadership, heroic or valiant. Mighty. Mighty. What is it saying? He's, the, the, the wise guys are, are looking this over and saying, this, this person is going to be a, a hero. That's what they're looking at. They're looking at it and saying, this, this baby is going to be a hero, a champion. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus exhibited a different type of leadership, a different one than the Jewish people expected. They were expecting a David 2.0, right? David had been their greatest leader ever in Israel. And when this person came, they were expecting when the Messiah came that he would be an updated version of what David was. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came 
bearing a style of leadership that many have dubbed servant leadership. And talking about a kingdom that's not of this world. The Bible tells us in Philippians that Jesus came to earth and he voluntarily gave up any divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. The mighty God manifestation that Isaiah is talking about here was seen in part at the resurrection. That's where Jesus began to display this type of sovereignty, this type of kingliness. And when he comes the second time, I promise you, that title will get fully fleshed out. Fully fleshed out. Number three, everlasting or eternal father. I believe this has to do with his sensitivity. Some might ask, why in the world would, would eternal father, the, the title or name eternal father, be used to describe this child? It's important for me to say to you that when the word father is used here, it's not used in a Trinitarian sense. It's not used as a way to discuss the Godhead. It's used as a way of talking in a descriptive way of what this son will be like. And the use of, use of father here is a, is, a, is a way of describing uh, his character. In Psalm 103.13 it says, A father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. One of the things that we know about Jesus is that the thing that, attract, that, 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 that was attractive about him is that he had compassion for people, especially people who were of the lower class. One of the things that frustrated him about the leader of the people of the upper class was the lack of compassion they had for the people of the lower class. But this child came bearing it all. He came bearing, he came bearing wisdom, because that's who he is. He came bearing sovereignty and, and power and might, because that's who he is. But he also came bearing the heart of a father. The same child grew up and stood on a mountainside over the city so he could see over the city of, of, of Jerusalem. And in that moment, he's saying, man, if I, could just, if I could just gather you all to myself. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. It is the image that Jesus gave us when talking about how the father was when he spoke the prodigal, the parable of the prodigal son. Number four, the prince of peace. 
This has to do with his serenity. The, the word peace here means the chief or head of inner tranquility. Ephesians 2.14 says about Jesus, He is our peace. In a world filled with war and conflict and violence, it's difficult to see how Jesus could be peace, but physical and political harmony aren't the, the first definition of this word peace. The word peace here is the word, you've heard it before, shalom. And it can refer to a calm or tranquility of groups or nations. But the primary use of the word shalom is to a person's personal peace. What these wise men would have come to understand is that this child was coming Yes, to bring peace on earth, that was part of his, the announcement of his arrival. But he was coming primarily to bring peace to people's hearts. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But in me, you can find peace. The day will eventually come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is who the wise men saw him to be. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These were some of the signs that caused the wise men to take a thousand-mile journey to worship, worship this newborn child. Their response? It tells us that they fell to the ground in worship because they saw what they needed to see concerning who he was. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back to the platform, but I, want, I got just a couple other things I want to say, so don't, don't check out on me quite yet. I want to close with this one verse. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, after spending the last 11 chapters defining where we're at spiritually and defining the greatness of God, he says this. So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. This is his appeal. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices to God dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is true worship. This is true worship. On Friday night, this is past Friday night, 
think it was Friday night. No, maybe Thursday night. I think it was Thursday night. We were here Friday night, Thursday night. My granddaughters were in uh, a Christmas concert over at Central Baptist. For those of you who were there, it was absolutely wonderful. And at the beginning of the concert, the, um, the song, their opening song was in the African language. I don't know what African, I don't know if it was uh, Swahili, was it Swahili? It was in a, an African language. I was talking to the girls this morning. He said, man, it took us weeks to learn that song. I can't even begin to pronounce the words that they were singing, right? But it was, it, the title of the song was African Noel. And there was a lot of that kind of thing. So they opened the, the concert with this song. I almost fell out of my chair. I said to my wife, who was sitting a couple of people over, I said, could you please get me a, could you please get me a pen and a piece of paper? And they're like, what? Because if I didn't write this down right now, gone. So fortunately, they had the African words, and then underneath them, you know how people do, they put the English translation. They're singing, 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 kept singing the same thing over and over and over again. And then they got to the next slide. And whatever the African words were, I know not. But underneath those words, this is what it said. If you want to know the sun, you have to kneel. If you want to know the sun, you have to kneel. We've gotten away from kneeling in our culture. We much prefer this stance. And then people say, well, I don't have to kneel. I can kneel in my heart. I don't think those wise men made a thousand mile trek. I think they made that thousand well mile trek full well knowing when they got to the end of that trek they were going to fall down on their faces before this child we don't like to pay homage in our culture in many respects we're too proud But if you want to know the sun, you gotta kneel. You gotta pay homage. 
got to be willing to see him for who he really is. And when you do see him for who he really is, you won't have any problem kneeling or falling prostrate. No problem. We're talking about the God of the universe. We're talking about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that, as I said, one day everybody will do that. Whether they want to or not, they're going to. You and I, because we've seen what we need to see, should be finding ourselves frequently Lord, I am just laying my life before you in service, in submission, because I've come to discover who you really are. This is what the wise men traveled from afar to do. And I believe it should be no different for you and I today. Just because we're not, our culture's not into that kind of stuff, doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't lay our lives before Him. I saw this, I, I, I said to Jody, she was doing some decorating yesterday and I, I thought the more appropriate stance for this guy right here is right like that. Right like that. you to stand I want to pray and then we're going to have the guys sing and I'm not putting anything on anybody you you do what you gotta do wired us to worship. You've wired us in such a way to give ourselves to someone or something. And we see people all over the world today worshiping all kinds of things and people. Literally giving of their resources, their money, their 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 lives, their, their to all kinds of people and things. As ones who've come to know you for who you are, as one 
who has come to know you for who you are. I just want to say, Lord, I consider it a privilege to fall down before you, to kneel in your presence, to give my life as a living sacrifice because of who you are. And I pray, Lord, as we enter into this Christmas moment, into this these weeks that we await your arrival, Lord. I pray that you would receive our worship coming from hearts, Lord, who, who are willing to bend our knee to you. Who are willing to be prostrate before you, Lord. You humbled yourself. We humble ourselves. And in that, we find the fuller meaning of what it means to worship you. whether we're here at church or whether like those wise men they were in a house or out in a field in the middle of the night doesn't matter wherever or whenever Lord we bow before you and worship please accept our worship the only wise God and deserving of all of our worship. As someone once has said, it is the reason for the season. Because when you show up, worship goes up. And we know you are here in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray.